Turn to Joshua 14. Turn to Joshua 14. We're going to read our passage and then pray. We're going to read our passage all the way through in a shocking move. Joshua 14 uh, records the inheritance given to Caleb. And we're going, to, we're going to talk about that this week and next week. It's kind of a little mini-series. Joshua 14.6 says this, Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which Yahweh spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed Yahweh my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed Yahweh my God fully. So now, behold, Yahweh has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. So now, behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now. For war, for going out and coming in. So now, verse 12, give me this hill country about which Yahweh spoke on that day. For you heard that on that day that the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps Yahweh will be with me, and I will dispossess them as Yahweh has spoken. So, Jahweh, so Joshua blessed him and, and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kezite, until this day, because he fully followed Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Akiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among, among the Anakim. Then the land was quiet from war. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by your Holy Spirit and profitable for us to give us instruction and to give us sound teaching and to equip us to be fully equipped for every work that you have for us. We, we come to this passage believing in your power and your purposes in it. And we pray that your name would be known among us and in how our faiths act in bold obedience because of what we hear and read here. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, perhaps you're thinking as I'm reading that, um, David, do I really need another Bible battle story in my life? Do I really need to 
Do we really need to study any more battles in Joshua? We just got out of battles, and now you're dragging us back into the battle territory. Now, some of you do not like battle stories at all. I'm not going to single out who you are, but some of you prefer romance. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, so, yes, there are two fingers way over there. All right, so, uh, so let me just say, I believe the battles of the Bible actually apply closer to your life than you may realize. Let me say that again. I believe, I am convinced after studying this passage and after thinking about this all week, that the battles of the Bible are good for you, believer and unbeliever, to understand. Because they connect and relate closer to your life than you may understand. Now, let's just put a a pin in that. And I'll come back to it in a minute, and I'll explain why that is. And let's just kind of walk through this, 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 this lesson we have. We're, we're going to learn from Caleb tonight, and I want to present to you the true nature of victorious faith from the story of Caleb that we find before us in Joshua 14. The true nature of victorious faith as we see it in Caleb. We're going to learn some things from Caleb. We're going to learn... We're going to learn from Caleb his energy, his fullness, his humility, and his difficulty. We have much to learn from Caleb in these four ways. Now, because one of the points is humility, I'm going to exercise one of those points right now and say it is impossible for me to get through all of these points, believe it or not. So we're just going to split off two of those for next week, and we'll do the first two this week, and it will feel very short because it's only two points but it will feel very long because two points with me is an eternity so amen that's right that's the first amen i've ever gotten in here let's so let's learn let's learn the true nature of victorious faith first off i want you to see caleb's energy i want you to see caleb's energy now this was two weeks ago but do you remember how the tribes of Joseph that belonged to Joseph acted during the whole inheritance cycle. Do you remember that? Turn over to Joshua 17. Remember, Joseph was divided and made up of two tribes. The two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, made up the sons of Joseph, the two tribes of Israel. Remember how they acted and they behaved. 17:14. Then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance, since I am a numerous people whom Yahweh has thus far blessed? Okay, 15, and Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Verse 16, the sons of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the valley have uh, valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Beth Sheeran, Sheeran and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, recall, their, their problem doesn't appear to be a space issue, but it appears to be a, a discontentment issue and a, and a disbelieving issue, right? We can't go down there. They've got chariots of iron and a forgetful issue as well because we just saw in a few chapters back, Israel drove out many iron chariots. So, 
the, the whole land allotment section is actually begun by this man named Caleb, and it's finished by Joshua. Both of those men begin and end kind of the land allotment section in the book of Joshua. And I think they're there to paint an intentional contrast against the other tribes. Jo- uh, Caleb here is here to present an intentional contrast of faith against the backdrop of Israel's weakness and disbelief and even discontentment. It's here to teach us a lesson about what victorious faith really looks like. I mean, look at the contrast here. It's hilarious when you think about it. Right here we've got one, we've got an old man who has faith versus a bunch of young men who have no faith. Right here we've got one man who has faith versus many men who have no faith. Right here we've got one man with zeal and a bunch of men gripped by fear. And then we've got one man with energy for the Lord, and we've got a many men with great laziness for the Lord. That's what we see here. We see a, a contrast between Caleb and these tribes. I mean, I, that's what I want you to see. Just go, going back to chapter 14, do you get a sense about Caleb that he has eagerness, energy, readiness, enthusiasm for the Lord? He has energy indeed. And it's not just a an energy and enthusiasm for battle or for blood. It's not like that. It's not just that this guy likes fighting, although that could have been it. But but what gives this man such energy? It is because of his confidence in Yahweh's word. Can you tell that Yahweh's word is spoken of a lot here? It's an emphasis. It's a theme. Verse 6, you know the word which Yahweh spoke to Moses. Verse 9, so Moses swore, surely. Verse 10, as he spoke. Verse 10, from the time that Yahweh spoke this word. Verse 12, which Yahweh spoke on that day. Verse 12 again, as Yahweh has spoken. It's kind of an emphasis. That is why Caleb has such energy for God, because he believes the word of God. And that gives him great energy for God. Matter of fact, maybe even this is a bigger point. His confidence in God creates almost this magnetic force drawing him to the hardest battle he can think of. Look look at what land he wants. He doesn't want a quiet retirement home right on the shores of the Mediterranean. He doesn't want a peaceful hunting lodge at the base of Mount Hermon. Where does he want to stop? He wants to go to the very place that the 12 spies saw and fled from in fear. He wants to take out the Anakim, the giants of the land, the very ones, if you read in Numbers 13 and 14, were the cause of Israel's fear and doubt and rebellion. He wants that land. Caleb's confidence gives him this energy to attack the hardest issue he can think of because of his confidence in God's word. One of my favorite commentators says this, What a contrast this forms to the complaints of the Joseph tribes. Here is a numerous people, but one that lacks zeal. By contrast, Caleb is old, but eager for conflict. The pagan military resistance that intimidates the sons of Joseph only goads Caleb to conflict. 
What is one man's apprehension is another man's adrenaline. He gets excited. A rush of of energy and adrenaline from the conflict that causes so many others to wallow in fear. Notice that. That's just a question for you. Do you find yourself to have a strange adrenaline rush when hard things come? That's a weird question to ask. Should you find a strange adrenaline rush when hard things come your way? When, when things go sideways, are you quietly in the back of your mind suspicious? My God must be up to something. You know that feeling when you're watching a new movie with a hero that you really like a lot, and he's doing something crazy, seemingly crazy. He's running in the opposite way. Nobody's supposed to go that way, but you, in the back of your head, have this sneaky smile in the back of your mind saying, this is going to be good. There is this, there is this adrenaline and eagerness that captures Caleb. This joy in even a hard circumstance and a confidence. It's all because he has a confidence in God's word. He is magnetically attracted. What, what spiritual quality are we talking about? We're not just talking about energy. My kids have energy. You have energy. But what, what quality, what spiritual quality am I describing here when I say Caleb had energy for God? I'm talking about a boldness. A boldness of faith. Let's define bold faith. Bold faith is this. Bold faith is courage. It is energy in doing what you are convinced to be God's will. Bold faith is an energy when you are convinced that you are in God's will. It's a blessed state. It is a happy joy. It is a sneaky suspicion that God, even in the hard things of your life, is up to something. This is something we talked about with the boys at winter retreat. The believer, when when they know God's will, actually they are in the place of supreme joy and comfort and confidence. But because when when they know what God's will is for their life, they can anticipate God's great resources and power and presence to accomplish His will in their life. They can have energy and eagerness and joy, even in difficulty. Because that is God's will. That's an interesting concept to me. It really is. Oh, let me just think about this for a second. When can you, believer, have confidence? When can you have confidence in God? When, you can, when can you have confidence that you are walking in the way of God and He'll give you the spiritual resources to empower you as you are walking? How about this? When you are fighting for purity, you can have joy and energy from God. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That doesn't, that doesn't put aside the effort, the work, the, the conflict that you must do to fight for purity, but that is the joy of the believer to know that you are in the way of God and He can give you grace and strength to obey Him. Or how about this? You can have boldness, courage, energy when you are turning in repentance from sin to God. Just think about Luke 15. 
Just think about the story of the prodigal son. Just think about what that whole entire chapter is trying to communicate to you. Jesus is saying through three parables, isn't he not, that the the believer has joy in repentance because they know that God has joy in their repentance and is eager, eager to empower them as they come back to him. He is not far and angry from the believer who is truly turning back to him in repentance. He is welcoming him with joy. Or how about this? You can have boldness, courage, energy when you are telling someone about Christ or when you are helping someone learn to follow Christ better. Why? Because Jesus says he'll be with you always when you are fulfilling the Great Commission. He says to you, he says, go into all the world. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, what does he say at the end? I am with you always. You can have joy, energy, enthusiasm, knowing that God's resources are there. Or you can have energy as well when you are dealing with sin between maybe yourself and another believer. Or between two believers. Why? Because Matthew 18.20, Christ says to Believers that are dealing with discipline issues, even though it may be the beginning of discipline, which is just you going to your brother and expressing his fault. He says, I am with you always. I am, I am in the midst of you there even as well. And here's something encouraging. You can even have energy, courage, and boldness when you are seeking to know God's word so that you can obey. Because the Spirit who inspires those very words, is eager to illuminate those words to you as well. Second Timothy says, all scripture is breathed by God. And what's the purpose? That that spirit breathed them out and is now illuminating so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, so in other words, you believer can have daily energy in ordinary things. In ordinary acts of obedience, you can have joy, confidence, and boldness because this is God's will. And I believe that he will give me the resources to achieve them. Let's look at a, a next, another lesson. Another lesson about virtuous faith, victorious faith. Not only do we need to learn from Caleb's energy. I want to also insist to you that you need to learn from Caleb's fullness as well. Learn from Caleb's fullness as well. Notice, notice all the, this is a weird way to say it, but fully language in this passage. Uh, Caleb says, verse 9, but I followed Yahweh my God fully. Moses says, you have followed Yahweh my God fully. And then even the narrator says, because he followed, verse 14, Yahweh fully. There's a lot of fullness language when the narrator is describing Caleb. Notice, he is not half-hearted like Saul. He is not no-hearted like Saul and half-hearted like Solomon. Uh, Caleb lived with an energy, a spiritual energy and courage about him because his heart was filled with something. What was that thing that Caleb was filled with? Caleb stands 
in striking contrast once again to the uh, to the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and the other ten spies in Numbers 13 and 14. Why? Because in conflict, when trial happens, when trouble happens, when danger happens, when something is scary or dangerous, they are filled with fear and Caleb is filled with something else. He is filled with God and God's word. Some of you probably don't know this, but yesterday was actually the first day of summer. It probably wasn't on the calendar, but to the Papillon household, it was the first day of summer. And of course, I'm not saying it was the first day of summer because we finally got out our, our short sleeve shirts and shorts. Obviously, we've had those out for weeks. Although I am ashamed to say that I do have different clothes that I wear around the year. I have truly transitioned from someone from Minnesota to Bakersfield. It's very shameful. I'm very ashamed of that fact. But no, the, the reason why it is the, the, the official first day of summer is because uh, it's, the, it's the day when my kids finally discover the kiddie pool that has been stationary on the side of the house for seven months now. And they're all excited about it. This is the first day where they get to jump in the pool. And this happens every year. They, they pull out the pool, and I, I try to fill it up with water. And by the time it's finally full, they're bored of the pool because it's a kiddie pool, and it's not meant to be fun. <laughs> it's meant to cool you off. But this year was a little bit different. As you know, we got a little bit of rain this year. Matter of fact, the pool was filled up already. But it wasn't filled up with delicious, cooling goodness. It was filled up with algae. And a, and a very slick film over the top of that water. And snails were skiing, water skiing, across the surface. So instead of the kids jumping in, of course, my wife demanded that they not go near it. She dumped it out, and she filled it with soap after spraying all the snails out and the dirt out. And then she let it soak for about six hours. And then finally, by the time I got home last night, the kids are like, can you please help us clean this kiddie pool? So what do we do? We get sponges out. And we scrub the pool. And then, of course, that, in theory, gets rid of the disease, so then the kids <laughs> swim in it. Now, that was a really long way to say, what would happen if, while we're scrubbing out the pool, I take one of those sponges, and I lift it right over Jane's head, and I squeeze? Oh my God. Admittedly, it'd be very satisfying for one moment. Until the screaming starts. <laughs> and what would she say to me in that moment? Or what would I say to her in that moment? Jane, now why are you all wet? <laughs> Parents are just so sweet, aren't we? <laughs> and what would she say? Because you just squeezed that sponge all over me. When in actuality, no, it wasn't me, Jane. I just simply squeezed the sponge. The real reason you are wet is because that sponge was full of something. It's full of water. That's a tricky way of getting around the issue there, I admit it. But it's a good parenting move because it gives you an amazing opportunity to talk about the heart. Did you realize when... Now, you guys are wondering how I got to this. Did you realize when tough times happen... That simply is pressure, and all it's doing is revealing what is already inside of you. It's not somebody else squeezing a sponge that's making you wet. It's, it's your own heart. That's a little bit too far, I admit. 
Notice, I just am very compelled by this. Notice when, when Caleb, when hard things happen to Caleb, what does he do? He goes from Kadesh Barnea in verse 7, he spies out the land, and what does he do? He, brought, he brings back word, and now what we're expecting here in verse 7 is for him to say, and I brought back a good report. But notice how he explains it. He explains it in language that describes fullness. I brought back what was in my heart. That's what you bring back when difficult things happen. That's what you bring when hardships happen in your life. Just simply what is in your heart. And it was trial and it was trouble, but what do we see about Caleb's heart if we were to just say what Numbers 13 and 14 is all about? We'll just skim it really quick. We see what was in Caleb's heart in in Numbers 14. After the spies bring back a disastrous word, he is gripped by great grief over the rebellion of God's people. When sin happens, are you gripped with grief over rebellion? And the judgment that this is going to cause, that was Caleb. Him and Joshua, they tear their clothes. He is also, what comes out of his heart? Great calmness comes out of his heart as well. Chapter 13, Numbers 13, verses 30. He is able to calm the people and try to quiet them. What kind of heart do you have to have to be both gripped with grief and calm and be able to calm? And most of all, we see he is gripped. What comes out of his heart when everybody else is panicking and wanting to stone all all that disagree with him? What comes out of his heart? Great confidence in God as well. It says this in Numbers 14, verse 8. Caleb says, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey. But as for you, only do not rebel against Yahweh and do not fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has been removed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. He has great confidence in God. That's what comes out of his heart when trials come. And notice in all of this, he has great awareness of the difficulties, of the challenges. He has seen the giants himself. He has seen the fortifications himself. It's almost as if, it's almost as if something different is filling him than what is filling the other spies. He has the same information, but he has a polar opposite conclusion. Did you know that that can be true of you as well? But it all depends on what is filling your heart and mind. Because that will come out. So that's the question. What fills you? And don't answer that question when it's all going well, when it's easy, when everybody's friends with you. Answer that question when it is hard, when it is difficult, when you're not totally sure why God is putting you in the situation he's putting you in. Then answer that question. What is filling my heart now? It's a simple argument. Your energy from God will always flow out of what fills your heart. And if your heart is filled with confidence in God through His Word, you will have great energy for God, even. That's what we see in Caleb. That's what we want to see in ourselves as well. Now, tie this back 
at the beginning of this message, I, I stated that the, the battles of the Bible apply closer to your life than you probably realize. And I do mean that. And I do mean it when I say you as a believer and you as an unbeliever. The, the battles of the Bible actually have more to tell you and apply to your life than you may realize. Just in case you haven't figured it out yet, what, what kind of battle, what kind of fight are you in? Let me give you a hint. Oh, we are engaged in a battle that is greater than the battle that Caleb was fighting. Matter of fact, his little battle was but a skirmish in the war in which we are still engaged in. It's the same war, though. Ephesians 6.12 says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, Paul says in verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Look at this. We are engaged in what? We are engaged in a spiritual war. What does that mean? It means it's not obvious always. It doesn't seem like war always. And notice, it's not with other people necessarily. It's against forces of wickedness, forces of evil. Now, there's great confusion about what spiritual warfare is. One view of spiritual warfare that's the most popular seems to think that spiritual warfare is everywhere, that demons are everywhere. We need to cast demons out of our houses, out of our relationships, and out of our cereals. We need to have demon deliverance services and Sundays. And, and, and every sin in our life is actually the cause of some sort of demon activity in us. And of course, the, the problem with this extreme view of a kind of hyper everything, you know, I got to cast out the devil here, I got to cast him out next week, and then I got to spit him out the following week because he could be anywhere and behind anything and in my shoes even. The problem with this is, if you think about it, it really does remove all personal responsibility from your sin, doesn't it? I, I don't have a lust problem. I have uh, a demon of lust, and he caused me to look. I don't have an anger problem. I've got a demonic problem. I don't have a fear problem. I've got a spirit of fear in me. And suddenly it's not my fault anymore. The devil made me do it. That's one view. And, and perhaps in response to that, there's another view, and this is more in reform circles, where spiritual warfare is minimized a little bit. But we need to be careful there, because if we do not recognize the warfare that we're in, we will not utilize the resources that God has given us, or see the value of the resources that God has given us to fight this war. But be sure, we are all in a spiritual war. What is the nature of this warfare? It is a spiritual warfare. But what is it primarily? It's primarily the believer's struggle and war 
against their own sin. That is what spiritual warfare is in your life. It's not against demons in your life. It's against your own sin. And the spiritual forces of darkness are trying to take advantage of your sin to either keep you from God or minimize your usefulness in God's kingdom and for God's service. Spiritual warfare is primarily about you fighting and warring against the sin in your members. Think about this. The the believer isn't given resources to cast out demons or to bind Satan. We don't actually see that in the pages of Scripture. But what are you given resources for? Great and powerful resources. You are given resources to go to war with your sin. And you can have great energy and boldness even in that fight and even in that war what are our resources notice verse 10 be strong in the lord and in the might of his strength there that's a passive command be strong be strengthened in, in a sense of, I need to be humble and receive resources. I need to find the resources of God that He has given me. I need to take up the resources, the power that God is giving me to struggle and wage this war. Victory in this fight, victory in this fight doesn't come from you or your wit, but it comes from you and the victory that you find in Christ Jesus and in His blood and in His righteousness over you. And it comes from the power you receive in Christ Jesus through the Spirit to fight against your sin. It's the power of Christ through the Spirit to put off sin and put on righteousness. By the way, if you want Paul just to uh, synthesize the spiritual battle, just jump over to Romans 13, 14 real quick. It says this, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Notice, that's what spiritual warfare is. It's putting on and it's putting off. And that sounds exactly like Ephesians 4, if you ask me. What are our armaments? You probably know this. All of these these forms of armaments are actually describing one thing. The strength of the Lord and the power that we have in the Lord, and the confidence that we can have in the Lord. We have strength in the Lord to stand and wage war. But what is the strength that we have in the Lord? It is simply this, the truth of the gospel. These armaments, these pieces of the armor that we see in Ephesians 6, are nothing but the gospel, again and again and again. Verse 14, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth putting on the truth of the gospel, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate covers the vital organs. Christ Jesus' righteousness covers you completely, and you cannot be touched by darts of any kind. And of course, this righteousness leads to a righteousness in your life as well. How about this? Put on the shoes of peace. In Christ, you have peace with God, and that is tremendous peace. That's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2.17. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. You have peace with God. Therefore, all other forces are nothing 
compared to your peace with God. Of course, this leads you to pursuing a peace with others. Verse 14 of chapter 2, He himself is our peace, who made both groups, that's Jews and Gentiles, one, and broke down the dividing wall of the partition. We have peace with God, therefore we can stand against the devil's lies and traps. We also have a shield of faith, Ephesians 6 tells us. We, We can withstand We can withstand a mixed, prolonged, and vicious attack from the devil because we hold on to God. And we have the helmet of salvation, a picture of our assurance. Or how about the sword of the Spirit? We are filled with the Word of God, and this is how we attack and make war. This is how we win in the battle, through being filled, not just weekly, but daily immersed in Scripture and in God's Word. Now, I did mention that the battles of the Bible are very, very applicable to you. And I did say even to unbelievers. What do you think I mean by that? Well, why should you as an unbeliever be very concerned about the battles that you see even in the Old Testament? Because they simply show you the battle that's still being engaged in, and they show you whose side you are on, don't they? You are in a battle that is lost. And you are none other than a pawn in an enemy's hand, and when he is done with you, he's going to destroy you. And he would love to do that sooner rather than later. Finally, One of my favorite quotes, William Arnott says this, The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God and the other takes part with his reconciled God against his hated sins. Notice that. We're all in a war. It just depends on what side you are on. And you can't just jump over to God's side. You need to go to Christ for forgiveness and grace and for His righteousness to cover you. You need to plead for His blood. Otherwise, you are on the losing and condemned side. You are taking part with your cherished sins against a dreaded God, and it will not end well for you at all. Let me say one more thing. Just jump one, one more thing. And when I say one more thing, I actually mean 16 different things. But this is really just one more thing. Just, just it's one more thing. It's, it's, just, it's one thing that I saw about Caleb himself, and it's his name. He's got a pretty funny name. First off, his name is Caleb the son of Jephunny. <laughs> I looked it up. It's true. It's how it's pronounced. But also, did you notice his other name? Verse 6. He is Caleb, son of Jephunny, the Kenizzite. What is a Kenizzite? Is it somebody that belongs to Ken Weldon? (laughs) It's a really bad joke. Actually, the origin of the Kenizzite is murky at best. Some people would suggest that this is referring to him as a brother of Kenaz, which is actually... Othniel, 
which is actually somebody beneath him. And that doesn't seem to have a lot of weight. Why would Caleb, uh, the older man, be named after a younger man? But that's just me. And other people, for that reason, say, you know what, we have seen Kenizzites before. They are uh, the people that, you know, Moses' father-in-law belonged to. That would mean that Caleb is not really a full Israelite. And I'll even do you one better. There's another time the name Kenizzite appears. And do you know where that appears? That appears in Genesis 15, 19. It's referring to Canaanites. Think about that. At best, he is a son in the tribe tribal line of Moses' father-in-law. At worst, he is a Canaanite himself who perhaps left Canaan with the sons of Israel. But notice this. What does this tell you? This tells you something incredible about your God, that we see it again and again and again, right? The true Israelite is not always the one who is born that way, but the one who receives the promises of this God and embraces him by faith. And that person, even a Canaanite or a foreigner, can have bold energy and, and fullness of strength in God. Because this is how God is. He gives promises. Not to people who were just born in the right family, but people who believe the right things. And that is really encouraging for us, right? That is super encouraging. We can be enemies of God and then be used in the next moment for his great purposes. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for blessing us with this word from you. And we pray that you would continue to use it as we dig into it in small groups. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.